Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. Welcome to This Week in FCPA, episode 172 for the week ending September 20, 2019, the tribute to Joe Mon edition. This week begins on a somber note as we uh, recall the passing of Compliance Week reporter Joe Mont and what he meant to the greater compliance community. Stories we look at are some of the tributes that poured in for Joe. Mike Volkoff took a deep dive into the recent business roundtable statement on the purpose of a corporation. Former Cognizant Technology COO, whose name I won't even try to pronounce, settled FCPA charges. The Netherlands proposes a nationwide AML system. What is an ethical culture and why does it matter? Jay explores that. What is algorithmic corporate misconduct? Uh, It's explained by a blog on the uh, NYU Compliance and Enforcement blog. Despite prevailing conditions, a CCO is not a god. I'm a little bit surprised to hear that. Uh, Russ Dixon asks, do UK, UK DPAs throw individuals under the bus? Mary Shirley tells you had an ace of job interview. We summarize the week of podcast for Converge 19. All this and more on episode 172 of This Week in FCPA, which is produced by the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance, together with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 172 for the week ending, September 20, 2019, the tribute to Joe Ma edition. Jay, uh, on a somewhat somber note, you are aware that uh, my Compliance Week colleague, Joe Ma, passed away this week. So uh, he was a great reporter and a great asset to the compli- greater compliance community. We're going to have a little bit of tribute to Joe in a minute. But uh, uh, so uh, we start off on a bit of a somber note, but we had a, a fair number of compliance and ethics stories this week. So uh, you want to jump into it? Yeah. So um, as you mentioned, Joe, there's a sadness in the whole ethics and compliance community. Uh, Joe Mont was an integral part of Compliance Week for the past seven years. And he read on many different issues and rules and regulations about both corporate and political things. And he was an award-winning journalist who was twice ranked on Ascent's Top 100 Conflict Minerals Influence Leaders list. Uh, earlier in his career, Joe was also co-publisher and editor of Cigar Lifestyles magazine, where he once was uh, known to have famously traded advertising space in the publication for a cigar store wooden Indian. He hated meetings and he suffered no fools. 
What made him a phenomenal journalist was his ability to talk easily and candidly with anyone about the most complex regulations and then bring these regulatory intricacies to the audience in clear-cut, straightforward prose. Tom, I know you have some other remembrances that you wrote on your website. Uh, did you want to take over? Yeah, um, I got. I interviewed each one of the editors. Joe worked under a compliance weekend. They gave me a couple lines that I just like to read. So Matt Kelly, who hired Joe, said, "I had the good fortune to hire Joe Mon at Compliance Week in 2011. He was a stellar reporter, able to grasp new and complex issues quickly. And corporate compliance had new and complex issues in spades. Joe took to the material like fish to water. He was a great co-worker." always eager to shoot the breeze and talk shop. Even while Joe was in poor health for years, he never let those difficulties slow him down. The compliance profession has lost a voice too soon with his passing. Uh, Bill Coffin, who succeeded Matt Kelly, said of Joe, Joe was many things. He was a fine journalist, sharp wit, and a true fighter. He was the kind of guy who would effortlessly drop a Warren Zevon quote into casual conversation and remind the whole world why he was one of the most foremost experts on conflict minerals then go toe-to-toe in an interview with people like Barney Frank. In a world where intelligence, insight, and accuracy are uh, so often overshadowed by clamor, chaos, and celebrity, Joe is a fine reminder that sometimes the old ways are indeed the best ways. He will be missed. And finally, Dave Leeford, who is the current uh, editor-in-chief at Compliance Week, said of Joe, Joe is not only a dogged reporter, had a knack for making complicated topics relatable to readers. He was one of the most authentic people I've ever met. He suffered no fools, and he always shot you straight, even if it was something you didn't want to hear. We lost a great journalist and a great friend today. Uh, I was on a, a Q&A with Joe uh, at Compliance Week, and um, it was really the first time I had the chance to, uh, to be around him for any length of time. And he was just like a Washington insider. In fact, I thought he lived in Washington. He knew every regulator. And, of course, he was a Boston guy and had always lived in Boston, but he had those personal connections. So uh, we lost a great friend, and we lost a, a great voice in the uh, greater compliance community this week. So uh, here's to you, Joe. So uh, next up, Tom, uh, our colleague Mike Volkov uh, takes a deep dive into some into the recent business roundtable statement. Uh, can you summarize what he talked about in parts one through three of his podcast? Yeah, um, it was blog post, not podcast, but that's okay. Um, the uh, I was really surprised Mike took this much time to write about something that I thought was relatively straightforward. Nevertheless, as always, he did a great job. He, I think, started this journey somewhat skeptical of uh, the business roundtable statement, uh, restatement of corporate purpose. Uh, nevertheless, he is fair in his analysis of it. He laid out the uh, new stakeholders who the business roundtable wants to uh, bring into the conversation, customers, employees, suppliers, communities, and, of course, shareholders. Uh, a couple of things though, that he pointed out, I thought were pretty prescient, uh, Jay. Obviously, uh, culture is important, and I know that's something you and your colleagues and affiliated monitors talk about a lot, but he says, uh, brings it into the statement, uh, ties those two together. So I thought that was good. Two, he really focused on the board's role in this, and I know you and I talk about this uh, 
culture a, a fair amount, but we may not have focused as much on the board as he did. So I thought that was uh, really good that he uh, forced us or, or asked the board to take a look at their their role in culture. And then he uh, also take uh, rather um, ask us to uh, consider uh, how we would change all of this going forward. So uh, I thought it's a pretty good uh, series, a lot to think about, as you might expect uh, from Mike Volkoff, Jay. Indeed. So uh, next up, we have a story coming to us from the FCPA blog entitled Former Cognizant COO Resolves FCPA Offenses. And uh, the facts are the former chief operating officer of New Jersey-based Cognizant Technology settled charges that he violated the FCPA uh, by helping to bribe an Indian government official covering up the payment. Sridhar Thiruvengadam paid a penalty of $50,000 and agreed to cooperate with the SEC. The agency resolved the case through an internal administrative order. A senior official from India's Tamil Nadu state demanded a $2 million bribe from the construction firm that was building Cognizant's 2.7 million square foot campus in Chennai. The bribe was an exchange for a building permit. Four Cognizant executives, including Theren Vangadam, met by video conference to authorize the bribe. In February of 2019, Cognizant paid about $25 million to resolve FCPA charges. The DOJ brought an enforcement action through a declination with disgorgement and the SEC through an administrative order. The DOJ has also charged two other former Cognizant executives with multiple FCPA violations. And as you might recall, Cognizant's former president, Gordon Coburn, and its former chief legal officer, Stephen E. Schwartz, allegedly authorized the contractor in India to pay bribes and directed subordinates to conceal payments by doctoring the contractor's change orders. So uh, a little bit more clarity into that uh, situation. Um, next up, we've got something cool from uh, our colleague, John Rush, and his dipping through geometries. And uh, Tom, what is John writing about this week? So he wrote about a proposal that uh, originated in the Netherlands uh, to set up an organization that would monitor uh, payment transactions literally throughout the country. So there are five major banks there, and uh, he's, uh, or the Netherlands rather, are looking at a way to monitor the payments and transactions through all five. This obviously is a, a pretty uh, a big step, and John views it as a very positive step. Um, he views it as really the first step for an EU-wide ability to monitor payments. And given uh, what we saw out of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania earlier this year, this could be something uh, that's a fairly powerful tool. Uh, he also notes that uh, the initiative is one that should be followed closely here in the United States. The financial sector is well aware of the global regime for monitoring uh Transactions in AML and terrorist financing uh, consists of silos or what he calls stovepipes and uh, in which financial institutions only review their internal transactions without reference to potentially relevant transactions that other financial institutions are identifying. The joint initiative offers a promising opportunity to see if there's a more coherent approach to uh, AML and terrorism financing monitoring that can be devised in conformity with a wider set of national laws going forward. 
So uh, this week uh, I started a new series on the Corporate Compliance Insight website, and I started to take a look at culture and why does it matter. And uh, as we've discussed over the past few months, senior leaders at both the Department of Justice and the Security and Exchange Commission have given multiple speeches that bring up the need for appropriate corporate culture around compliance. Uh, we've also said before that my colleague Eric Feldman believes that culture is everything for an organization. Culture is the foundational internal control without which all your other controls are likely to be ineffective. This means corporate culture is the way things really are in an organization and the way things really work. While corporate culture can be reflective of core values of a company, this usually only occurs if the company operationalizes those values throughout the organization. The linkage between culture and compliance is that culture drives ethical behavior. Every employer you hire and every organization you acquire will change that. Therefore, in a mergers and acquisition, excuse me, in a mergers and acquisitions context, due diligence is critical. And if you do not understand the culture you may be acquiring, you not only will have not an idea of how they fit together, but you might also be acquiring an FCPA nightmare. To have an effective culture, there must be an alignment between the top man between what top management says and the company's core values, as well as between what the organization says and what it does. This all comes from senior management getting out of headquarters and talking to employees in the field. No company aspires to be unethical, and most employees do not desire to engage in illegal or criminal behavior. But if senior management does not interact with and talk to employees, then they will not know how their messages are being received. Uh, next week in the second part of this series, I'm going to explore the factors that influence a company's ethical culture. You, of course, are aware of Skynet. And you know that Skynet will become self-aware. I think it's in 2021, but uh, perhaps a little before then. I can't remember the precise date, but it's it's well laid out in a series of uh, predictions that were uh, put forward in several movies by your former beloved governor, Arnold. Um, and anticipating Skynet going uh, uh, self becoming self-aware and going live, uh, <laughs> a gentleman named Mihalis Diamantis has written a very interesting piece in New York University's Compliance and Enforcement blog entitled The Problem of Algorithmic Corporate Misconduct. And uh, so, to my a little bit of sadness, he says he's not really talking about Skynet taking over the world where I really think he should be, but he talks about much more mundane um, uses of technology uh, such as a lender's automated platform approving mortgages in a fashion that has a discriminatory racial impact, even with a business justification, a financial institution's trading algorithm that makes trades on the basis of material non-public information, or even competing retailers' pricing algorithms that set pricing at matching super competitive levels. If any of these are legal violations, he asks the question of who's going to be prosecuted and how are they going to be prosecuted? So is it simply going to be the uh, coder who created them or is it, you know, go up to top management? Uh, we have enough trouble now um, uh, prosecuting uh, senior execs around bribery and corruption. If we try to get them on this, it's, you know, going to be extraordinarily difficult. 
so he really uh, goes back to the future by saying that a uh, corporation should be treated in the same way as the UPS truck driver who gets in a wreck, that UPS is responsible if a truck driver driving their truck and their employee gets in a wreck. Well, the same should be um, true for a corporation. He does admit that the law needs a framework for extending its understanding of the corporate mind beyond the employees whose shoes algorithms are coming to fill. Um, and, you know, maybe Skynet is the answer, Jay. I don't know. All right. Well, in something a little bit more concrete and down to earth, uh, we pick up an article from Clara Hudson at Global Investigation Review. And um, recently, Olga Pontes, the chief compliance officer of Odebrecht, described her company's journey through the scandal that was at the heart of uh, the Brazilian anti-corruption scandal over the past couple of years uh, that um, involved several companies. Odebrecht and its, and its subsidiary, Braskem, admitted in 2016 to paying bribes worth $788 million across 12 countries from 2001. To settle allegations with the United States, Switzerland, and Brazil, authorities agreed to pay what at the time was the largest corruption fine ever, $3.5 billion. Odebrecht and Gre- Braskem also agreed to hire monitors for three years. The investigation, which we know as Operation Car Wash, unveiled a massive foreign bribery scheme that saw leaders, ousted, and executives prosecuted. Pontes began her time at the company in 2009, working for its petrochemical subsidiary, Braskem. Once the scandal broke in 2014, she said that the denial process was very long. Worse, however, was that the company not facing the problem and realizing that there was a large element inside a small room. Following the tumultuous period, the company began to cooperate with authorities in 2016. Odebrecht revamped its board of directors and implement, implemented a rule that 20% of the board should be independent. Uh, Odebrecht's changes saw its compliance team triple from 30 employees in 2015 to 93 in 2019, and the budgets also spiked from $2.7 million in uh, 2015 to almost $20 million in 2019. And Pontus uh, concluded an interview by saying, the chief compliance officer is not a miracle wor- worker. The chief compliance officer is not God, she said, but it's the thousands of employees that need to make changes to help companies recover. So an interesting interview with Olga, and we uh, link to it in the show notes. Uh, next up, uh, Tom, what is for this religious uh, intonation? Uh, because when I read this originally, I thought she was talking about a, a God, but she's actually talking about the God. So uh, that's the capital G guy, you know, the big guy. Um, I'm very disappointed to hear that here. I was thinking all along that the CCOs were at least a little Little G gods. Um, so that's kind of point one. But the other point, a couple of other points, I guess. Uh, did no one else in the company know this was going on? Um, I found that odd. But uh, I also focused on her, her compliance team increase in staffing and both in headcount and budget. So in 2015, there were 30 employees for the entire company. Now they're 93. 
And the compliance budget went from $2.7 million, and I have to remember this was about a $20 billion company, I think, to nineteen point eight. So uh, you would have to say that the company has made a commitment since 2015 to increasing that. But, uh, um, you know, where was the fire department or who, who was at the lighthouse or who was manning the gates? I'm not quite sure. But – I guess when you're not God, all those things happen. So next up, uh, you've got something on UK DPAs and how some individuals might be, get thrown under the bus. What's the story? Right. So Ross Dixon, who is a chair of partners at Hickman and Rose and an officer in the International Bar uh, Association Crime Committee and a member of the Fraud Lawyers Association Committee, uh, posted a piece in the FCPA blog and Jay was a little bit, um, uh, I don't want to say odd, misleading. I hate to use that loaded word. But uh, the title really didn't relate to the article. The, uh, the t- he, he went through and detailed the DPAs to date, and, and his recitation was adequate. But uh, he pointed out that the SFO has not prosecuted any individuals. Um, so um, I'm a little... I was a little befuddled by who got thrown under the bus when nobody got thrown under the bus. Nobody got pushed on the bus. Nobody got on the bus. Nobody got off the bus. Um, there been Spike Lee wasn't driving the bus. Spike Lee wasn't driving the bus, but he did the right thing. Uh, and if you think uh, back to any of these uh, DPAs, and most particularly Rolls-Royce, uh, the SFO itself said um, – or rather the judge who reviewed the SFO uh, DPA with Rolls-Royce specifically noted that there was substantial evidence of wrongdoing by individuals living and working in the United Kingdom. Yet, when it came down to um, prosecuting individuals, the SFO said it was not in the public interest to prosecute anyone, even though the DPA was based on the most serious breaches of criminal law in the areas of bribery and corruption. Of course, Tesco... um, the judge threw out the case. Uh, so I was a little befuddled by that title. Uh, I'm not quite sure where he was going uh, with all of that, but uh, nevertheless, a, a good review of uh, DPAs under uh, the uh, Bribery Act and under the uh, Serious Fraud Office in the United Kingdom. So uh, we've got our second article from uh, Corporate Compliance Insights. This comes from our colleague, Mary Shirley of Fresenius, and also one of the co-hosts and co-founders of Great Women in Compliance. And Mary takes a look at the interviewing process and how to uh, succeed on your next job interview. Uh, She breaks it up into several steps, and she says, you know, you've spent a lot of hard work tailoring applications for the job and the company and has paid off and you've been invited to an interview, congratulations on being shortlisted, but how do you increase your chances of cinching an offer? First of all, she says you have to prepare. Uh, When you get sent that invite and there's a calendar invite, make sure that there's a phone number there and that you have an ability to call in because one of the worst things would be to have the interview and not be able to get on the line. Next thing she says that you should do is do preparation. Uh, If they ask you a question such as, tell us about your organizational skills, you could say you have excellent organizational skills. I'm prepared for everything. 
or you could have some examples based on what you've done in your career or what you have in your resume. So you can't prepare for all questions that are going to be asked, but if you think about ones that will talk about your capabilities, it will go a long way. Another thing Mary stresses is the self-awareness. Make sure what you're saying comes out in a positive perspective. And if there are problems or things that could be done better at your old company, be uh, complimentary in how you discuss it. Nobody wants to bring somebody on to the team that's going to complain about things, and that's not going to be part of the solution. The last part here is closing out the interview. And uh, although paper thank you cards maybe have gone the way of the dinosaurs, it's still appropriate to reach out to either the recruiter or the folks that you have just met with on that online interview. Send them a quick note. Let them know how you how much you appreciate speaking to them and how you would like to, um, you know, come in and join the company. How you can make a difference. The last thing is they it is appropriate to ask one or two questions. So even though many of the questions might be answered in the course of the interview. Always have a couple of questions in your back pocket so you're not left with uh, silence at the end. So uh, it's some great advice from Mary. And as we said, we link to it in the uh, show notes at Corporate Compliance Insights. Last but not least, Tom, what have you been previewing this week on Convergent 19? So I uh, have five more podcasts from five separate speakers, and I really uh, seem to hit a stride this week, Jay. On Monday, I talked or posted with Scott McCleskey. He, together with a, a woman named Elizabeth Simon, are going to jointly do a presentation. I have Elizabeth's podcast will go up next week, uh, talking about mapping. Elizabeth's going to map comp- your compliance program, but Scott has a very interesting way to, to map ethical risk in your company. And I think that's not something that people typically do, which is to map your ethical risk. So, um, he, he is a really detail-oriented guy. He's got a lot of solid information. Um, I think you'll really enjoy that. Valerie Towery uh, from Visa <clears throat> talked about cross-functional collaboration, and, and silos are something you and I talk about and fight on a regular basis, and she really works towards having that cross-functional collaboration in her organization. Kurt Stitcher is a uh, chief compliance officer at a multinational who has really uh, developed a a solid way to globalize his compliance program going forward. Our uh, colleague on various platforms, uh, podcasts, and others, Matt Kelly, is going to talk about uh, developing effective strategies for third parties and data security risk. He's been taking a look at this for some time and really putting a, uh, a, a lot of effort into getting the word out about data security risk, most particularly with third parties. And then finally, on fr- uh, Friday of today, um, I had a speaker that goes in a very different direction. Uh, it's Anna Astor. And Anna is a principal at the uh, executive recruiting firm Hydric and Struggles. And she uh, works in the compliance space, and she's going to talk about the future CECO, C-E-C-O, the recruiter's, executive recruiter's perspective. And I know everybody's going to want to hear that. Uh, it's going to be a fascinating talk on where she sees CECOs, CECOs, and the market going in 2020, 2025, and beyond. So uh, if you haven't signed up for Converge 19, please uh, consider doing so. I'm still able to offer complimentary passes with the Fox VIP. 
code at registration. Uh, Jay's going to speak. Um, I'm going to speak. It's going to be just a great conference. Uh, it's going to be top notch, uh, quality presentations. I've got several, uh, testimonials from people that, uh, have put up, uh, Converge has put up a webpage and they will tell you that uh, you're going to get some actionable items that you can directly uh, input into your compliance program going forward. So I hope you can join us December, excuse me, October 2nd and 3rd in Denver, uh, Conversance Converge 19. And uh, to kind of uh, put the punctuation on the event, the Everything Compliance Gang will be doing our first live podcast at Convergent 19. You should be there and uh, listeners to the podcast. We hope you join us. And uh, we figure we'll figure it's a, a great way for us to uh, kind of put a nice bow on the experience uh, at Converge 19. So uh, on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 172 for the week ending September 20th, 2019, the tribute to Joe Mont edition. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you again for listening to this episode of This Week at FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I hope you will plan to join us at Converge 19. Once again, you could have a complimentary pass uh, utilizing the code FOXVIP. It's listed in the show notes. I hope you'll check us out, and I hope you'll come see the first live recording of Everything Compliance. It's going to be a ton of fun. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.